Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is a creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show, and watch your life grow. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Show. Another phenomenal guest, uh, Mr. John Perkins, uh, someone who, uh, if you do not know, you need to know. Uh, he has written, uh, uh, well, several books, actually. Uh, two uh, are, are unbelievable bestsellers. Uh, one uh, is Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which we're going to talk about, as well as his uh, I believe his current book is Could We? Um, and uh, welcome, John Perkins. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Philippe. It's great to be with you. I first um, found out about you and your work actually watching uh, a documentary uh, that I had, um, I think I just downloaded it from Netflix called uh, End of Poverty. Uh, and this was some time ago, and I remember uh, seeing you on there talking about, um, uh, well, I guess what the fundamental of being an economic hitman was and what, you know, the government actually does uh, uh, in these countries and what you do. Can you give us a little bit of background just to start out of, of what is an economic hitman? Well, yeah, Philippe, I, I think it's fair to say that the economic hitman have really created the world's, world's first truly global empire. And it's the first time an empire has been created primarily without the military. And, uh, you know, we work in many ways, but perhaps the most generic is to identify a country with resources that our corporations want, like oil, and then arrange a loan to that country, a huge loan, <clears throat> But, uh, but the money doesn't actually, then the loan is arranged through the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money doesn't actually go to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country. So our corporations are the main beneficiaries. This is how I give you a loan and say, hey, you got to spend all the money to hire me to do something for you. And the secondary beneficiaries are the are a few wealthy families in that country who who benefit from the infrastructure projects we build. They, they, they buy the electricity for their industries and their shopping malls. And they use the highways for their cars and the ports to, to, and airports to transport their goods and services. But the majority of the people of these countries don't benefit. These are pretty poor countries. People can't afford electricity or not much of it. They don't have cars to drive. They don't use ports or airports. And yet they're left holding a huge, huge debt that they can't possibly repay. And so at some point we go back and say, hey, since the country can't repay its debts, uh, sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies without any environmental restrictions or social regulations, or let us build a military base on your soil, things like that. And in the few cases where the, the, the leaders of these countries don't accept these deals, um, 
the jackals come in, and these are people that either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. Well, you know, what you're saying, honestly, to uh, someone who is, who is not uh, as well-read uh, in, in uh, uh, politics and, and, and government uh, and, and world affairs would say, oh, this guy is just, uh, you know, he's like John Grisham or something. He's just talking movie talk. This is stuff that you hear in the movies and see in the movies. This just can't be happening in real life every single day. Uh, how do you speak to that? Because this is something that you lived. Uh, we'll go back and talk about how you got involved. But this is this is very real. It's continuing to go on right now. Uh, and, and uh, you know, wh- why do you think uh, uh, people, a lot of people, don't really get this and understand what this means? Well, people maybe don't get it because the news media doesn't want us to get it. Uh, the mainstream news media is, is owned by the same people that are behind the system that I call the corporatocracy. This isn't a conspiracy theory at all. These people don't have to get together to plot to do anything illegal. They just own most of the resources of the world. We know that. We talk about the 1%. It's actually a lot smaller than that. Um, and they control the media. And so the media doesn't talk too much about it. Because all you got to do is go to a country like Ecuador, where I was just there last week. Mm-hmm. Very thing, the very thing is going on. And uh, when I was an economic hitman, the president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, did not accept the deals that I tried to make. He had great integrity, and he was assassinated. Um, Omar Torrijos of Panama also didn't accept the deals. He was assassinated. Just a couple of years ago, the president of Honduras, uh, Zelaya, was overthrown in the CIA coup because he didn't accept these kinds of deals. You know, it's, the, the record's very clear, and the United States has even admitted. We've admitted that we overthrew Allende in, in Chile. Um, Henry Kissinger's admitted it. We've admitted that we were involved in the plot to kill DM of Vietnam, and, and we, we've admitted that we overthrew Mossadegh in Iran and so on and so forth. So there's nothing secretive about this. Um, it's just that most people aren't aware of it because the media doesn't talk a lot about it for good reason. Uh, you mentioned in the book that you know, commerce uh, in 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 being an economic hitman or or an EHM, uh, you're pretty much sworn to secrecy. And of course, uh, because of what you do and the sensitivity of that, can uh, put you in uh, some uh, precarious a precarious situation, if you will. Uh, and you you kind of waffled for a while in writing uh, the book and writing about it. Uh, tell us a story about how how your daughter. Uh, actually encourage you to do this? Well, yeah, you know, I was a, it was a long time ago really that I, I was doing this. It was in the 70s. I left in, in 1980 this business, and I started to write the book that later would become Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And I, at that time, I contacted other economic hitmen and jackals because I wanted to get their stories too. And I immediately got phone calls, uh, threats, anonymous threats over the phone, against me and my daughter, who was born in 1982. She was very young. I took the threat seriously. I'd, I'd seen what happened to Mossadegh and Roldos of Ecuador and Torrijos of Panama, et cetera. At the same time, the chairman of the board of Stone & Webster, a major consulting firm in Boston and New York, took me out to dinner, and he said, you know, you got a great resume. I did. I, my, my official title had been chief economist at Charles T. Main, a, a major competitor to Stone & Webster. 
The company no longer exists. It was a very important company at the time. And and so he says, you got a great resume. We'd love to use it in proposals. You won't have to do much work for us, but just don't write the book we know you're working on. And we'll pay, I'd like to pay you a $500,000 consultant's retainer. Well, I have to tell you, I, I took the money. I, I knew that I took the threat seriously that I was getting. And in my own defense, I put the money toward uh, nonprofits. You can look at dreamchange.org or pachamama.org, nonprofits that work to help the very people that we've been screwing. Mm. I, wrote five book, I wrote five books on indigenous cultures. They were okay with me doing that. But I didn't write the book that became Confessions of an Economic Hitman and, and its follow-ups, The Secret History of the American Empire and Hoodwink, the three books you referred to. I didn't do it. Uh, and then I, my contract with Sony Webster was, was well over. I was in the Amazon uh, taking people in to visit some of these uh, indigenous folks that we were, we were working to help protect their land from oil companies on, on 9-11. But after... I got back to the United States. I went up to to um, the site in New York, the 9/11 site, mm-hmm. and I stood there looking looking into this pit that was still smoldering. I knew I had to write the book. Mm-hmm. At this point, at this point, and I no longer had an obligation to remain silent. I'd been out of the business for over 10 years. I had, my contract with Stone and Webster was up. They weren't paying me anymore. But this time, I decided I would write it completely in secret. And even my wife and daughter didn't know what I was writing. And I didn't write a proposal like you're supposed to do, like I'd done with my other books. Mm-hmm. Before that, I just wrote the whole book and got it to a very good agent in New York. And he got it out to major publishers. And at that point, it became my insurance policy. And it still is because even though it sold over a million copies, but on the New York Times to sell us for about a year and a half, it would sell many, many more copies if something violent were to happen to me tonight or something violent had happened then and people know it so so you know it's my insurance policy Philippe. how amazing is that is that not an amazing life uh how do you uh, uh you know you don't get a chance to ask the question often but i mean how do you sleep at night uh i mean really uh you know this is a a, a very very serious life uh, and lifestyle that you have lived and and uh, uh through authorship are, are still living well, I think it's important to point out that, first of all, I did nothing illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did should be, I did not do the assassination stuff. That's jackal. That's something else. I had nothing to do with them. I knew they were in the background. If, if the presidents and other heads of states that I talked to and tried to con, tried to convince to accept these deals, if they didn't accept them, then I knew it was very likely that something dire would happen to them. But I did not. I was not personally involved in that in any Mm -hmm. way. What I did should be illegal, but it isn't. In fact, it's taught in business schools that that's the right thing to do to help countries develop. You you give them a huge loan. You get them to build power plants and and power systems and roads and ports and so on, infrastructure. And, in fact, the statistics show that when you do that, the economy does grow. What the statistics don't show is that in the process, the poor tend to get poorer. The gap between rich and poor gets much greater. The rich get richer and richer. We're seeing that, of course, in the United States these days, too. Sure. So, but I did nothing illegal, and during most of the time I did that work, I thought I could justify it because it was what I'd been taught in business school. It was what the mm-hmm. right thing to do was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then once I really, really understood 
and I changed. You know, now, yes, I feel very badly about a lot of the things I did. I, I played a role in creating this disastrous global economy we have today, but but I'm, I'm, I'm committed to devoting the rest of my life to change that, to turn it around. And as my daughter, you mentioned my daughter, she's now 30. Mm-hmm. She recently told, told a magazine in an interview, she said, you know, I know my dad has to live with what he did, but I'm glad he did it because now he can expose the underbelly of the beast from the inside. He's one of the few people who knows what he's talking about and is willing to talk. Unbelievable. Absolutely amazing. I commend you and I commend your daughter. Um, when one hears uh, this uh, story, when one understands what it means, uh, uh, it, it really does not matter uh, what the political uh, climate is. It doesn't matter if you're an independent or Republican or Democrat. Uh, this is the policy of American government. Is that right? Yes, I, I think it's. I think this is a very important point you bring up, and that is that um, it, it does matter whether we vote for Obama or Romney. There's no question it'll impact the Supreme Court. It'll impact a lot of things. But the, in the big, big issues, the President of the United States does not have a lot of power. He, or if it's ever she, uh, is very vulnerable. Let's face it, you know. I mean, we, we we saw Strauss Kahn, the head of the IMF, brought down because a chambermaid accused him of raping her. Now, he may well have raped her. I don't know what the truth is behind that. He was exonerated in court, but I don't know what the truth is. But what I do know is all it takes is one rumor. Uh, mm-hmm. Clinton was impeached because of uh, Monica Lewinsky. Um, and, and, and Obama or Romney or anybody who sits in the Oval Office knows that he's very vulnerable that if he doesn't play the game the way the people who are really in power, and that's, that's the owners of the big corporations. Again, this is not a conspiracy theory, but these big corporations pull the strings in, in many different and subtle ways. And if they don't like what you're doing uh, as a president, uh, they'll find ways to bring you down. You don't need to assassinate anybody with a bullet anymore like they had to in Kennedy's day. You know, everybody knew Kennedy was having affairs with Marilyn Monroe and many other women. But it's okay. It's the carpet. Today, you can bring a person down with a with a sexual innuendo or a, something around drugs, you know, or just suggesting that they're not really a U.S. citizen. I mean, it just the, the president is a, in a very, very vulnerable position, and I think we all need to know that. And it's the big corporations that call the shots. And we also have to understand that the big corporations are also vulnerable, that we have control over them. How we choose to buy, how we choose to relate to the corporations is important. That's, that's part of the new democratic process is really understanding that the marketplace is a democracy and how we shop, how we support corporations, what kind mm-hmm. of emails and messages we send to them is very important. Uh, let's talk about that, uh, John. Uh, corporateocracy, I, I, I love that, that, that term. Uh, go a little deeper in defining what that means. Uh, there was a movie years ago that came out called The International. I'm sure uh, you uh, were uh, in the front row watching that with Clive Davis, and I forgot the other young lady's name, uh, about the big banks and the big corporations really running uh, the world. Uh, of course, people think it's a fantasy, but this is an actual reality. Uh, talk about corporate opportunity and what this means. Well, 
you know, I mean, we, we see in the case of, of Obama, he, and it's not his fault. He, he really had no choice. He had to accept a lot of money in his last campaign from corpor- corporations. Mm-hmm. He will in this one, too. And that means, and so does Romney, of course, and every other major candidate, and that means that the corporations have a lot of strings tied to our, our politicians. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that during a lot of my lifetime, I'm 67, uh, our politicians wrote the laws for the United States, but today it's it's much more the corporate lobbyists who write the laws, and they pass it through the politicians who they essentially control. And I think it's really, really important for us to understand this. Now, so this corporatocracy, the people who run the biggest corporations, and, you know, there's there's a lot of them, the five, five, five hundred, a thousand of them. It's it's not like they get together and sit in some room and make decisions together. But they are all controlled by one goal. And that goal is stated by Milton Friedman in Chicago School of Economics quite eloquently, is that the, they say that the only responsibility of business is to maximize profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. Mm. That's a terrible goal. It's not the goal that I was taught when I was in business school in the late 60s. I was taught that corporations also need to be really good and responsible citizens. And corporate CEOs will take a cut and pay before they'll lay people off. That all changed in the 70s. And and so these corporations are all driven by this goal, and, and, and they will all band together if they need to to fight any laws that restrict their ability to maximize profits. They will they will drive out politicians that stand up to, uh, to, to that against that goal. And I think that's it's such an important thing for us to recognize. So you do have this group of uh, very very powerful individuals have a lot of money, a tremendous amount of influence, and they own the, the mainstream media either outright or through advertising. And they they have tremendous control of our politicians. Um, when you say uh, these corporations, uh, uh, it, uh, it, it, I think it should be uh, specified that these are the billion dollar, multi billion dollar uh, corporations. Uh, you know, not the not the little, you know, necessarily the forty five. These are really the the billion dollar corporations uh, throughout. Uh, the world and in America that uh, are contr- that are uh, the one percent you said earlier that's actually less than one percent. Um, yeah. What does the little guy do? All right. So Occupy Wall Street, the Occupy movement. Uh, uh, you have a group of people who uh, is blaming government and the banks uh, and corporate America for the ills of the world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, taking anything, uh, taking any sides or, or taking anything away from, you know, marching on Capitol Hill and what have you, but, uh, you know, sitting out in tents uh, uh, and, um, uh, you know, blocking doors, uh, do you think that is an effective way uh, to bring attention uh, to the matter uh, and, and uh, a change of any kind? Well, the fact that you're talking about it, and practically everybody that I interview and, and does talk about it, means it is effective, at least in raising consciousness. And that there's got to be steps. There's got to be steps beyond that. But raising consciousness is, is is important, and we're seeing it around the world. I think these are very exciting times. Um, you know, the Arab Spring. We have huge, important democratic movements throughout Latin America. Mm-hmm. Huge changes there. 
of awareness. The Occupy movement, we're seeing people demonstrating against Putin in Russia, unheard of in the past. So people yeah. around the planet are really waking up. You know, they're, they're, they're beginning to understand that we've been terribly abused by the system. It's a little bit like, you know, if you take the old story of Robin Hood, you had the feudal lords who controlled everything, and then slowly people began to get aware of this. And Robin Hood and the merry men and merry women of Sherwood Forest, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a metaphor, but it's an important story because it says people began to wake up and they began to rebel against this autocratic control of the king and mm-hmm. the feudal, feudal lords. And as a result, they, they got the king, uh, Prince John, who became King John, uh, to sign the Magna Carta, which really changed a lot of things. You know, I think today we need a new Magna Carta, but it needs to be the corporations that sign it. And it needs to be a, an affirmation that the corporations are there to serve us, the people. They're not there just to serve that one, that less, that way less than one percent yeah. of, of the big investors. They got to serve us, we the people. And I think we really need to send that message strongly to them through through the way we shop, through the way we relate to them, through demonstrations, through movements like the Occupy movement. I think the Occupy movement has really helped to wake people up. And yes, there needs to be more steps beyond it, of course. Uh, well, when you say that, it does make a lot of sense why the media uh, really minimized uh, the Occupy movement uh, and said it, ha- it has no leadership, it has no uh, direction, uh, it obviously doesn't get any airplay or press now. Uh, and so that is a direct result because the advertisers who uh, are, are purchasing uh, uh, advertisers and keeping uh, all of the news channels uh, uh, on and, and the people employed um, is, is basically running the show and saying, uh, this is not something you're going to, to report on in depth. Right. It's, it, yeah. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a huge movement amongst the mainstream media in this country to keep us asleep, unaware. And, and the way they dealt with the Occupy movement is one example. But so many other examples, you know, I, um, I spend a lot of time in Latin America. I speak Spanish fluently. Uh, and also, I just, it just came from there last week. And, and shortly before that, I was in England and Ireland. And before that, in, in Istanbul and Turkey and in the Middle, Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I follow the news media in many of these other places, you, you get a very different view of the news. In Canada also, even. Uh, for example, there was a Latin American summit in Cartagena, Colombia a few months ago. Obama was there. He was highly, highly criticized by a huge alliance of Latin American countries uh, for drug policies in this country and, and, and gun policies. Uh, you know, they blame a lot of the violence in Latin America on the fact that we buy so many drugs from them. They wouldn't be producing these drugs. They wouldn't have that violence if, if, our, if it wasn't for our marketplace and drugs. And also, it's our guns that are sent to these places like Mexico. And, and there, was a, there was a huge hue and cry on the part of the presidents throughout Latin America. But we in the United States heard almost nothing about that. What we heard about was the 11 Secret Service agents who had invited prostitutes to their hotel in Cartagena, Colombia. Wow. If you read the, if you read the Canadian press or you read the, the, the European press or you read the Latin American press, as I did online, you would hear a, a lot about what was truly going on at the summit. We heard almost nothing about it in the United States. All we heard about was Secret Service agents and prostitution, which which is totally, ir- really irrelevant to everything. And you know, except the president should have to deal with it, the Secret Service should deal with it. 
the prostitution is legal in Colombia. They were doing nothing illegal, whether they, whether it was immoral or not, whether it was whether they were protecting the president or not, it's another issue. But it's not. It wasn't a big issue. There was mm-hmm. a huge issue going on that we didn't hear anything about because the media didn't want us to hear about it. Uh, this goes back to you, you talk about economics. This goes back to capitalism. Uh, you know, back in the conquistadors. I mean, it, it, it just kind of you know, travel, you know, from from uh, uh, from one uh, country to the next and then, you know, turned into capitalism uh, that uh, uh, created the policy and the laws uh, of, of, of America. Um, you, you, you talk about corporatocracy and uh, what capitalism does. You say that it is something that cannot continue uh, to go on. There's, there's got to be a bubble. There's going to, there's, there's got to be an explosion here. Uh, we, we kind of saw it, uh, back in the quote unquote, uh, uh, new recession. They don't want to call it a depression. <laughs> but, uh, uh, do you see that it is going to get better or is it going to get worse or has the bubble not, have we not even come close, uh, to this bubble? Well, ultimately, this economy we've created is is not is not going to work. Uh, we, we've got to change it, and hopefully we, we will change it in a way that won't be too uh, violent. There won't be a huge collapse, but uh, we've got to do something about it. I mean, we we know it's a failed system for many reasons, and and just one example is that we we know that less than five percent of us live in the United States, and yet we consume almost thirty percent of the world's resources. Well, half the world's on the verge of starvation. Or actually starving, and and that's not a model for the big. That's not something that can be repeated in China or Africa or India mm-hmm. or Latin America. These these places may want to replicate it, but they can't. The mm-hmm. numbers don't add up. Five percent consuming thirty percent. You can't you you can't you can't you can't accept that as a model. So that's just one of many examples of what we've created is a very unjust, insane, and unstable system. It's it's just not working, and it won't work. And it's what I call predatory capitalism. You know, capitalism can take many different forms, and I don't. There may be something better than capitalism. I don't know what, what that is exactly. But what I do know is that the kind of capitalism we have today, this predatory capitalism that says that the only responsibility of business is to maximize profits, and do whatever you need to do to maximize profits as long as you stay within the law, and yet you have the control of the big corporations to write the law. So basically. The laws that have been written there are, are, are laws that allow robber barons to rob, rob, steal, and 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 rape the rest of us uh, legally, uh, and and it hasn't always been that bad. You know, when I was in business school in the '60s and the Keynesian economics, it was it was quite different. I'm not saying that it was perfect by any means; it wasn't. But mm-hmm. we seem to be headed toward a more benign and and more compassionate form of capitalism, and then suddenly. In the 70s, that changed. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? What happened? I mean, obviously, you know, Nixon took us off the gold standard. What what, what, what caused this, do you think? Well, the theory is written by people like Milton Friedman and Chicago School of Economics. It's actually a very attractive one. And in in in, in its purest form, it, it it probably would be an interesting, maybe a very successful system. But the fact of the matter is it, it's not pure. And what was not taken into account was the incredible power that would uh, accumulate for a few extremely rich people who then were able to write laws 
that basically allow them, as I said, to 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 steal, pillage, and rape legally. Um, so, you know, if the law, if the laws were different, if we if we kept the laws in place that were written after the Great Depression, like Glass-Steagall, that's the most famous. But there's many others. If we kept regulations in place, we probably never would have gotten into this recession. But but because these people accumulate so incredible such powers and are able to control the politicians, they're able to write laws that make that, that support amazing amounts of greed. Uh, and so it, it, the system fails. And Ronald Reagan in 1980 embraced the Milton Friedman concept, and so did Margaret Thatcher, and so has every U.S. president since, Democrat and Republican alike. And partly because businessmen love this idea. All I got to do is maximize profits. It makes life very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and especially if you can write the if you can control the politicians, then you can do it all very very legally. So I, there's a lot of factors that came into play there. I think you know where we need to go now is to recognize that that system does not work, and we must change it. And we have a great um, you know precedent for that in the United States. For the first hundred years that we were a nation. No corporation could get a charter in any state unless it proved it was going to serve a public interest. It wasn't about maximizing profits. It was about mm-hmm. making enough profits to pay back your investors a decent rate of return, but mm-hmm. you had to serve a public interest. And I think we need to go back to a, a, that kind of a value system that says that the corporations are here to serve us, we the people. Let me ask you this, John, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a very altruistic way. Uh, in, in a perfect world, uh, we'd wake up one, we'd wake up, uh, you know, uh, Tuesday and then by Wednesday, the, the, the corporations of the world, the government, uh, will say, you know, it's time for a change. We're going to make a change. We're going to change our policy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we know from history that, uh, change is, is the hardest thing in the world to do, especially when, uh, you have the arrogance uh, of, uh, of understanding, not only understanding the laws, but writing them, uh, and the capital to back it up, there's no incentive, uh, for the corp- uh, corporate to change. Um, so are we heading for a re- revolution? What would that look like for America? Uh, we looked at what happened with Greece. We looked at what happened in Egypt and various different countries that are completely, uh, unraveling um, is that something that could or should happen here in America? Well, I, I, possibly, but I, I think there's another good possibility, and, and I speak at a lot of colleges and universities and including MBA programs, and I'm seeing a major change in attitude amongst young people where they're saying, look, I don't want to just go out there and maximize profits. That's not what life's about. I see so many MBA students that are saying, you know, I want to help the world uh, produce uh, energy more efficiently, mm-hmm. and more sustainably, and better mm-hmm. transportation systems. And I and somebody else will say, I want to found a company. I want to be an entrepreneur and, and help starving people in Africa grow food mm-hmm. more efficiently mm-hmm. and store it and distribute it. I think there is a change that's happening, a change of consciousness. I think we're in very, very revolutionary times already. Mm-hmm. It's a revolution in consciousness. And I don't think we need guns. I don't think to, to, for this revolution. It's, we don't need to go up against a major army. It's not about that. We need to convince these corporations 
this is a better way, I think we need to get them to redefine their goal and say, hey, you know, make a decent rate of return for your investors, but only within the context of being socially and environmentally responsible, mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. in the context of serving us, the people, the public, only within the context of working toward making a better world for our children and grandchildren, and that means children and grandchildren all over the planet, to recognize that we're living on a very fragile space station and there's no there's no shuttles to get us off this space station. We're going to have to take care of it. It means we're going to have to take care of the kids growing up in Botswana and Bolivia, as well as here in the United States, to recognize that and to have the corporations come together uh, to really make that happen. I I really believe that we can do that. You know, we in the past we get corporations to clean up terribly polluted rivers in the United States, mm-hmm. rivers that were up here in Ohio, sure. mm-hmm. and there was wider women and minorities. We, we have a tremendous impact if we decide to, if we just choose to come together and make that happen. And I feel that it is, it is in the process that the tide has changed and we need to keep pushing it harder. You think we're going to see that in our lifetime? What's that? You think we're going to see this change in our lifetime? I certainly hope so. That's what I, I'm devoting my life to. I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm not beating my head against the wall. And so I'm on this program with you. So I write <laughs> Well, you're definitely not crazy, which is why I have you on the show. Uh, you know, you, you, you are a master of masters in this, and uh, yeah, one of the most uh, uh, intelligent persons to, to speak uh, on this subject. So, so yes. So you, you do feel that uh, we will be able to, to see significant change within the next 10 to 20 years. If I didn't believe that, Philippe, I would go, I would, you know, I'd, I'd head to South America and eat, drink, and be merry and forget all of this. But I really believe that we can create a better world. And I'm, I'm committed personally to making that happen. I have a five-year-old grandson. I really believe that he can inherit a world from, from us. And he'll be proud to look back at and say, hey, thank God, Grandpa <laughs> did what he did, and all those other great people that were listening to this particular show uh, went out there and, and worked to, to change the world. I really believe that we can do that, yes. I, I absolutely commend you on that. Uh, I have obviously some more questions, but I want people to know how to get in contact uh, with you. What is your web address and so, what are the web yeah, addresses and I, some of the charities that you're involved in? Thanks, Philippe, and I'm going to have to get off because we, we, we set this up as half an hour. We've already gone over that, so I've got another thing coming up in about Oh, my minutes, God, so. I'm so sorry about that. No problem, my friend. Well, obviously, I'm going to have to have you come back. <laughs> okay, well, that would uh, be great. But people can get in touch with me at, at johnperkins.org. Uh, please subscribe to my website and to my newsletter. You can subscribe. You can go right on my website, johnperkins.org, and subscribe to the newsletter. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, and Twitter, and so, you know, I'd love to have people stay in touch. I, I, I speak at quite a few venues. Uh, they're, on, they're on my website under schedule. The website's being redone. You'll see a new one soon, but uh, for now you can go to that old one and subscribe. So, yeah, I'd love to, love to stay in touch. Fantastic. Well, well, John, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, because Lord knows you are busy. Uh, and speaking with me today, uh, and I, I just would love to invite you to have a, 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 another a round uh, with me uh, uh, at a later date. Can we can we have you come back on the show at a later date for us? Sure, that'd be great. You know, you know how to make that happen. You made this happen, so I'd love to do that. And keep up your good work. This is what freedom of the press is all about, and this is what change is going to happen because of what you're doing. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thank you. 
All right. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.